Amen. You guys may be seated. And for those of you that are checking in the children, you can do that now. And there are two stations, check-in stations now available to you to be able to do that. We run that through first grade. And for those of you whose children are remaining in the service, again, we love having children in our service, learning the rhythms of worship with us. And so they are most welcome. Uh, We have been working through Uh, Our statement of faith, the London Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith, and we just read paragraph by paragraph in the last several weeks, the last seven weeks actually, we have been looking at what the confession says about divine providence, and these are uh, statements grounded in Scripture but taking into account the totality of the Scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments. And I want to read you our last paragraph, paragraph 7 of chapter 5. On divine providence, it says this, and it, and it deals with common grace and special grace, right? The grace that all of God's creatures uh, enjoy, and then that special grace that is given, that salvific grace that um, because of Christ Jesus that the church enjoys. It says this, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. So that is uh, paragraph 7 of chapter 5 of our confession. But if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18? And that is where this morning we are going to uh, camp out. And by now, most of you know that we're doing a short series uh, as we are as uh, the membership here, we prayerfully annually reconsider our membership uh, together. And, and so this is, uh, series has been to help aid us in doing that. And also we've got a lot of new families that have been visiting us over the last several months. And the elders thought that it would be good if we did a series like this before we jump back into the Gospel of Mark, which we are, Lord willing, going to do at some point in February. But week one, we worked through three particular words that you've heard around here that you see on our sign and our logo, Biblical Reformed and joyful. We looked at that together. The following week, we looked at the significance of the gathering, why we should gather regularly. Uh, last week, we looked at baptism. You know, the next week, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. But this morning, we are going to look at what many pastors and theologians call church discipline, uh, which is a very heavy, kind of weighty topic to go through. And But it's church discipline, and we see one of probably the clearest place for that practice in Matthew 18. And just as a confession to you, I, I personally, I, uh, I, I don't really like the, the, the term uh, church discipline. And I, I especially don't like it just in light of, of spiritual abuse that we perhaps know of or have experienced in our own lives, right, in the local church, some of that spiritual abuse even coming from uh, pastors in the church. And I prefer to think, uh, just me, I prefer to think of church discipline more as uh, search and rescue uh, is is the way in which I like to think about it. Because I, I think in context, it captures the intent Christ had in mind when he uh, entrusted his church with, with this most important task. Search and rescue is more expansive, as you'll see this morning. And, and I think that we need to have, uh, as Christians, a more expansive view of church discipline than perhaps 
uh, we already have. And again, I have as my text Matthew 18, and I'm going to read most of Matthew 18. I'm going to start in verse 6 uh, because I think it's, it's important that we read all of this chapter together to, to discern the, uh, carefully the, the particular function of the local church as it relates to the search and rescue process that the Lord has left us. And so Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 6, I'm going to read down to verse 35, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will, by God's grace, examine this passage together. The word of the Lord says this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, right, Christ speaking, to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned into the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of the offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes, right? So, so our sins, they have a ripple effect on other people, okay? There is, we're never sinning as an isolated individual. Our sins have a ripple effect on other people. And here's the prevention, okay? Here's the prevention that the Lord prescribes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And then we get into this parable known as the parable of the lost sheep, verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And then we get in verses 15 to 20 here, what's commonly known as the passage on church discipline says this, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that, quote, he quotes the Old Testament law, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses, hear them. Tell it, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be uh, to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Verse 21, instructions about forgiveness. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 
Therefore, he goes into another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion released him and forgave the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, right? Less money. And he laid hands on him and he took him by the throat saying, and he, it, he took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe and I will pay you all. And he would not. Or he, it, So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servant saw what he had done, they were grieved and came and told their master all that he had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him into the, to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. And then Jesus interprets the parable. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you, do to each, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for another week in your word together. And God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us, God. Give us humility, Lord. Grant us repentance. And we trust you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing, there, there is a lot in this passage, and, and you're going to notice there's a lot that I am going to have to neglect, but I, I want us to get the, the meta-narrative of this passage, if you will, and see uh, how it relates to this practice, again, that's commonly called church discipline, or what I prefer to call search and rescue. And there's some preliminary work that we must do, heart work, that we see evident in this passage before we even get into a discussion about search, uh, about church discipline. And, and you'll find this in your notes. We see first and foremost that there is in this text a call to repentance. There's a call to repentance. Our, our sin was dealt with violently. Therefore, we must deal with our sin violently. Okay, so there, there's a call to repentance. Our sin was dealt with violently. Therefore, we must deal with our sin violently. And this really is, like I said, this is the starting place for us, right? I don't think that it's a coincidence, and you'll see why we read almost all of Matthew chapter 18 as we go along this morning. But I don't think that it's a coincidence that before Jesus gets into the passage that many of us know of as church discipline, verses 15 to 20, that we have this charge to deal with our particular sins ruthlessly, to deal with our particular sins ruthlessly. Jesus says in verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maim rather than having two hands and two feet 
to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than two eyes to be cast into hell fire. And certainly we know that Jesus isn't telling us here to actually cut off our hand or cut off our foot, right? He's not telling us to pluck out our eyes, but Jesus is speaking in this way to teach us about the serious nature of our sin and the impact that our sin has on other people, right? He's using this language to teach us that we have to treat sin. As God's church, we have to treat sin with the utmost seriousness. Sin's not to be taken lightly, right? It shouldn't be ignored. We shouldn't brush it off. We certainly shouldn't laugh about sin. I mean, sin, our, our sin, my sin, your sin is worthy, according to Jesus, of everlasting fire. It's worthy of everlasting fire, which means the everlasting wrath of God. And we, you and me, we, we have to be violent. We have to be violent, ruthless in the way in which we deal with our particular sins. And maybe you haven't thought about your struggle with sin in that way before. Yet where do we get that example from? To be violent with our sin. Right? The example of sin requiring violence, force, exertion. Right? Well, we see that sin required violence in the garden. Right? When the Lord conducted the first sacrifice, blood sacrifice, and when he clothed Adam and Eve's nakedness. But we also see that our sin required the most violent act in history. It required the most violent act in history that Jesus, right, truly man and truly God, he would be nailed to the cross and the wrath of God for our sin, for our sin would be poured out on Jesus there. Our, our sin required violence. It required violence. And from there, right, from us, by God's grace, being positionally right with the Lord, we have to grow to see that our remaining, this side of eternity, our remaining indwelling sin it can't be entertained. It has to be put to death. Right? I think of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, right? and by flesh he means your sinful passions. Right? And he's speaking to the Roman church that he had just reminded of the glories of the gospel. So if you live according to the flesh, you will, some of you may be able to quote that from memory, you will what? Die. You will die. But if by the Spirit, the Spirit of God living in you, right, your, your fixed position in Christ, if by the Spirit you put to death, instead of you dying, you put to death the deeds of the body, right, your sinful passions, you will live. Romans 8, 13. The Puritan John Owen once said you, that you better be killing sin, or sin's going to kill you, right? It's going to kill you. Think of sin's progression 
in our lives. Think of its progression in our lives, how it kills us, as Owen asserts. It begins in the heart. It begins in the heart as we ruminate on those things that deaden our souls. So we think about it, as we marinate our minds, our hearts, we're, we're, we're constantly rolling it around in our, our head. We turn our eyes off of what we see Solomon in the Proverbs warn us about. When we take our eyes off of the good path and our eyes wander to the right and our eyes wander to the left. And as it progresses in our lives, it intensifies in our lives, doesn't it? It becomes more twisted and it, we become more entangled in it and we grow more hardened as we stray and we wander to the point where we will over time commit sins that we never even thought ourselves capable of. Sin, it hardens. It, it deceives us. It makes us illogical. It's treason against God who the unfallen seraphim can't even gaze at him because of his holiness as they shout in Trinitarian format, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it's destructive. It's devouring, harmful to our very souls and it leaves a wake of victims, little ones, that we see in Matthew 18. Little ones in your path. So sin's not harmless. It's not trivial. We shouldn't joke about it. We shouldn't look at it fondly. We shouldn't brag about the, the sin of our past, even in our testimonies. Man, I was just such this sin. We glorify sin, even in the way that we talk about it at times, or with the way that we entertain ourselves with it, with what we put before our eyes. We have to deal with it violently. We have to confess our sins before the Lord, our very specific sins to the Lord. And we have to confess them in the way that the Bible tells us to confess them. That means, A, that the Bible defines what sin is and what it isn't. And we, you and me, we don't have the authority to modify that. Secondly, God's Word gives us the prescription of repentance, which includes making restitution when repentance calls for it. Right? Repentance isn't, I'm sorry, can we, let's just move on. Nothing to see here. Right? God's word gives us the path of, of walking in the light instead of walking in darkness, right? of loving the light and of hating the darkness. And God's word tells us that we must cut off and pluck out those things in our lives that lead us down this harmful path of temptation. And I think of the words of David when he confessed and repented. Psalm 32, verses 1 to 4, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. Here's what happens when he wasn't. This is how he felt when he didn't confess. This is how he felt when he didn't walk in repentance. He says this, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long for day and night. Your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. 
So we have to open our mouth, really open our mouth, which is in turn opening our heart in turn in repentance and faith toward Christ. It's one of the reasons that we have, that's the reason why we have a time of weekly confession as we gather. And it's, it's the reason why we have a weekly habit of remembering that we've been pardoned in Christ Jesus. Right? We should want to be a people that, that seek to address the planks in our eyes, right? We don't want to be known for ignoring the planks in our own eyes because we're so focused on the specks in other people's eyes. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. So that's our prerequisite this morning in light of dealing with the sins of others. We have to be quick to repent, and we must repent comprehensively. We have to repent comprehensively. Turning away from sin requires that you change your habits because your habits often aid you in you walking the path of temptation. The second thing that we see, and we've I got a few subpoints to this, is that the church, right? We go from the individual level to now we're talking about the church level. The church cannot ignore sin. The church cannot ignore sin. The bride and the body of Christ cannot ignore sin. And, and because we're not just individuals, and hopefully we're learning, we're growing in our understanding of that together, right? We're connected to one another in Christ Jesus. And that means that there's no schism in the body. Members must care for one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 to 26. And there are reasons why the church must deal with sin at a corporate level, at the church level. And the first is this, the church deals with sin because God commanded us to, right? The church deals with sin because God commanded us to. There is an escalation, if you will, from verses 15 to verse 17 in Matthew 18. Jesus' instructions move. Again, we, we see this individual addressing of sin, but he moves from confronting uh, the, the escalation, the movement, as it relates to confronting the one that is deceived by sin. He progresses this way. Right? First, one-to-one. We see that in Matthew 18. You go to the brother who has sinned against you, tell him his sins, Lord willing, he'll repent, right? The next step, right, if that doesn't work, is two to three to one, right? You establish evidence so as to not bear false witness, right? And if that doesn't work, you tell the church, right? Is, 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 the, is the next mechanism that the Lord has, has given us Right. And, and simply what I want us to see again is that the church is not allowed, the church is not allowed by God to ignore sin. But what sins are we talking about? It's a f- fair question because all of us sin, right? Every one of us sin. And as I've mentioned already, we, we have to deal with every sin, every personal sin we must deal with in our lives, right? We, we cannot ignore anything, cannot ignore anything. But there are some sins that go on for so long and rise to such a destructive level that the church must deal with them publicly, meaning amongst the church membership. Okay, it, it, And it, it's true that, that from the smallest lie to murder, every sin is deserving of an eternal hell in light of God's holiness. But it's foolish to lump in little lies and equate that 
to murder or something like rape, right? To put that into the same category. We do this often when we're trying to make other people feel better or when we're in the process of ignoring someone's sin in hopes that it'll go away. But think of the person who tells little lies and the person that has murdered someone for just a moment. Both can absolutely be justified by God in Christ Jesus, right? Because the gospel of God, as we should know, is far-reaching. There's no center off limits to the gospel of God, amen? Yet, one person is further down the road in his sin, is further hardened by his sin, perhaps. Furthermore, one individual is into the life of another individual, and that is different than lying. Furthermore, there are different earthly consequences for sins that are also crimes, and rightly so. Rightly so. When someone commits a heinous, sinful act against another image bearer, it isn't because they were honoring the Lord that day and then they just happened to stumble into the mess that they created. That's not how sin works, is it? We know that experientially, we know that, right? Their path was a progressive one. We see that, for example, with sexual sins, which according to the Bible, is a special category of sin. Now, the Holy Spirit of God calls it, quote, a sin against the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. One that you can absolutely be free from and forgiven of, but it's foolish to ignore that particularly enslaving nature that comes with it. And the sexual sin that satisfied you today will not satisfy you tomorrow. It has to become darker. It has to become more perverse. It has to become more shameful. It must become controlling of your life and your time and your consciousness. Sin progresses in degrees to more darker sins as it deadens your soul and enslaves your soul. That's the sinister nature of sin. And when someone walks this path of sin and is committed to walking that path, and this is critical, and refuses to call it sin and refuses to repent and to walk in the light, that is when it rises to the place that it has to be dealt with at the corporate level as a whole church membership. So we're commanded. It's the first thing. Secondly, the church deals with the sins at the corporate level to care for the victims. This is where we see the more expansive nature of what we think of as church discipline. If you keep looking at Matthew, the Matthew 18 passage, there's a victim there. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you. Right? We also have the phrase little ones and causing them to stumble, perhaps even stumble in their faith. Our personal sins against the Lord chiefly, David says, King David says, says they're against the Lord first and foremost, right? Against you and you alone have I sinned, right? King David said in Psalm 51, 4. But there's still sins against other people too, right? King David sinned against Bathsheba and against her husband, Uriah, who he had killed. He sinned against the entire kingdom as well. Right, sin that rises to the level of David's sin, it leaves much 
devastation in its path. And the Lord has given his particular local church to help care for the victims of such devastation. Perhaps you've experienced this type of devastation in your own life, and I, I hate that for you. I hate that. There are very practical things that we should do as a church to help those who have been or are being devoured by the sins of others and and are just tempted, frankly, to give up in despair. First, very practically speaking, we should pray for them. We should pray for them and perhaps with them if they'll let us. And I mean genuinely pray. Casting anxieties on the Lord, 1 Peter 5, 7. And praying for the rest of Jesus, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Right? Praying for these individuals, these image bearers, and what for them is the dark night of the soul. Secondly, we should weep with them. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. We should mourn and lament the devastation of sin in the lives of image bearers. should weep with them. Third, we should help bear their burden as the Lord gives each of us unique ways in which we can do that. We see that in Galatians 6 too, right? Bringing... Bringing the church membership in on this process, it opens up struggling saints to the various giftings and availabilities of church members. Now, this is critical for us. The the offended party, the offended party in this process cannot be overlooked when the church is working with someone as it relates to their own repentance. We cannot overlook the offended party. So that's another reason why we, why why this would rise to the corporate level. The next reason why, the third reason why, the church deals with sin to care for the one deceived by sin. Again, we're staying tethered to Matthew 18. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the section commonly referred to as church discipline is preceded by the parable of the lost sheep. The Lord came to seek and save the lost. The Lord demonstrates to us his attentiveness to lost sheep in the parable of leaving the 99 in the search of the one. Again, we see that in verses 12 to 14 in Matthew 18. And we also see that Jesus has entrusted the local church with continuing this type of ministry. No matter the sin, no matter the sin, our church should want to see people who were caught in sin, we should want to see them reconciled to God. We should want to see them. We, 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 there's no sin which, which Christ can't redeem, and there's no sin that should make us as a church hope for the damnation, again, of an image bearer. And again, there's a particular way the Lord's prescribed for us to do this. If the offended, the, the victim, if you will, and, and just by way of caveat, there, there's, there's a spectrum here. There's a spectrum here when I use that word victim, right? There are victims of sins that are crimes, abuse, rape, violence, 
And then there are some sins that rise to such a level that there's no way for there to be a conversation between the victim and the perpetrator, right? There are some sins that the Lord brings into the sphere of the civil government to help address. But in the case where the offended or the victim can confront or address the offender, right? That's the starting place. And for most of us, that is absolutely doable. And many times, most times, in fact, the process can end there and praise God for that. But when that doesn't happen, you begin to expand that circle of people that know about the situation, not for the purpose of gossip, not for that reason, but for the purpose of establishing evidence and seeing this straying Christian reconciled to the Lord, reconciled to those he or she is sinned against. And if that doesn't work, if that still doesn't work, we bring it before the whole church membership to pray collectively for repentance. And if that doesn't work, the church membership is to treat this individual, again, according to Matthew chapter 18, as, quote, a heathen and a tax collector, which means as one who's not a Christian. This person who is hardened, This person who's deceived by sin and sinning against others and bringing reproach to the name of Christ must hear a pronouncement from the church that they're not a Christian, not because the church is being mean, but because we want to see this individual restored, truly restored. And when we do this, right, when sin rises to such a level that it has to be dealt with in this way, right? When a, when a person refuses to call sin, sin, and refuses to hear the call of repentance and faith, the Lord can use this approach if he chooses to shock the conscience of the unrepentant. And prayerfully, the unrepentant will begin to walk a path of repentance, a path of restitution, the kind that we see Zacchaeus, an actual tax collector, do when he repents and he repays what he stole four times more than the amount that he restored. We want to see people like that restored to God, reconciled to God, and when appropriate, reconciled to the people that he or she sinned against. So we pray for them. We pray for them in humility and prayer. We confront them. We have clarity for them for the sake of the gospel. And we preach the gospel to them. So that's the third reason. And the fourth reason that we must deal with sin, that the church deals with sin is because of the testimony of Christ and to warn other believers of sin's dangers. So the church deals with sin for the testimony of Christ and to warn members of sin's dangers. Turn quickly with me to another passage of Scripture. We see in Matthew 18 that one person's sin left unaddressed can cause others to stumble into sin or into unbelief, and that's not good. But look with me as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. It's here that we see the Apostle Paul calling the church of Corinth to apply Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. Okay, so if you want to see what Matthew 18 looks like in the New Testament, you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's there that we see it. Paul says this. It's actually reported, and Paul's having to step in because the church is refusing to apply Matthew 18. Okay, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. In such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, 
right? Think of the word pagans when you see that, right? Then a man has his father's wife, and you're puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed am absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present. I've already judged him who has done so, who has so done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, right? His sinful passions, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you're truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. But according to this passage, there was a man in the church of Corinth. And he was a... Man in, in, in this, this just church at the corporate level, they were either A, ignoring, or B, celebrating this man. He was committing adultery with his father's wife, probably his stepmom, right? but we don't know for certain. And this is such a high level of rebellion that Paul says, not even pagans act this wickedly. In other words... Right, in tolerating this sort of high-handed rebellion against God and against image bearers, the church is staining the testimony of Jesus Christ to the unbelieving world. Right? And if we'll be known as Christ's disciples by our love for one another, how unloving is it, as we see here, how unloving is it to ignore sin? How unloving is it to condone it or to pretend that it isn't there so that hopefully it'll just go away on its own? It's wildly unloving to ignore sin. And it stains the reputation of Jesus who's pure and holy. All right? Ignoring sin, though, it also corrupts the rest of the church body. That's, we, we see the concern there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as well. It has a leavening effect Right? When we knowingly and willfully ignore sins, right? which means we tolerate sins, not only are we morally culpable for what we're tolerating, but we also are not immune to the spreading of sin. Right? One of the reasons the Lord has us deal with sins at the corporate level is so that those of us struggling with like sins, perhaps in seed form, might be given the opportunity to repent. Because rest assured, we all have sins, don't we? We all have sins. And this man at Corinth, he was to be removed from the church. And it was to become clear to the members of the church that unrepentant sin isn't tolerated. And in that act, the Holy Spirit of God could soften other believers and give them the space and perhaps the motivation to repent quickly and to repent decisively. Again, we have to be ruthless with our personal sin, and that includes us being ruthless with our personal sin even when cautionary tales are presented to us in the form of church discipline, right? So may, may we never look at someone who's caught in sin with shock. Rather, may we be motivated to confess our particular sins to the Lord and walk in the light, 
putting this man out of the assembly here in 1 Corinthians 5, it was imperative. It was imperative. And it was a testimony to the watching world that the church cared about righteousness because Christ, who's our husband, is righteous and he's deserving of our submission. I want to close by bringing your attention to the last part of Matthew 18. Another aspect I think is neglected when we're dealing with offenders and the offended. And that's this issue of forgiveness that we see in Matthew chapter 18. So we began with a call to repentance. We're concluding this morning with a call to forgiveness. A call to forgiveness. We must have a ready disposition to forgive based on how God in Christ has forgiven us. We must have a ready disposition to forgive based on how God in Christ has forgiven us. We see another parable in Matthew chapter 18 that teaches us about unequal weights and measures and and judgment. This follows uh, the answer that Jesus gives to Peter about forgiveness when he says, in essence, Jesus saying to Peter, always be ready to forgive. But the, the parable, it follows a debtor. It follows a debtor, and, and there's a servant who we see is indebted um, to this master, and he begs the master for more time, right? And he, he's great debt. And this master grants him in compassion time to repay this debt, but unbelievably, this servant then turns around and deals harshly with another, another servant that owes him less money than he owes the master, right? And when the master hears of how ruthless the servant had been, in light of the compassion that he had, right, he takes the servant, he hands him over to the torturers until the debt's repaid. And the parable is interpreted and the section is concluded for us in this way. Verse 35, Jesus says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart, heart, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Just again, in closing, I, I want to speak to this first, right? In marriage, you learn how to forgive when two sinners are colliding in that sort of way, right? And, and then you think you're doing okay, and then you have children, and you realize you're even more of a sinner than you, re- you thought initially, right? And you, you've got all these opportunities to confess sin and repent of sin and be sanctified by God. And then also you see as when you're committed to a local church, a particular local church, for a long term, uh, for the long term, you rub up against people that frankly, annoy you, and you probably annoy them, right? And we'd get plenty of opportunities to forgive one another. You become well-practiced in both being forgiven and distributing forgiveness, right? But I want to make a clarifying point for us. We can only grant forgiveness to the one who comes in repentance and restitution and asks for forgiveness. There's no other way for that sort of, if we're speaking transactionally, there's no other way for that transaction to happen. And for some people, you may not have that opportunity, right? But the type of forgiveness that we see here in Matthew chapter 18 is the heart posture of forgiveness. It's the heart posture of forgiveness. People who have been forgiven much by God in Christ Jesus, will cultivate in their lives lives a forgiving heart posture. And this is critical because it eradicates bitterness from our lives. It eradicates bitterness from our lives. It keeps you from becoming entitled. It keeps you from becoming prideful, which are temptations that the Lord knows offended people are prone to having. We have to remember, we need to internalize 
as the offended ones, perhaps, if you're listening this morning. We have to internalize this grand reality again that we have been forgiven much by God. He has cast all of our sins into the depths of the ocean. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, 12. He's canceled our debt. Colossians 2, 14. How then could we as Christians live our lives embittered about the sins of others against us? We can't grow embittered and cold and calloused. We have to have a forgiving heart posture. Depending on the circumstances, we may never face the one who sinned against us again. But for most of us, we will. And we should. And we must not harbor resentment. Colossians 3, 12 to 13 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, clothe ourselves in tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time in your word, God, and help us to have clarity on this issue. A passage that's been mostly neglected, I think, in churches, the other ditch as well as it's been abusively used as a weapon. God, may we see it as a search and rescue mission. And we ask that by your spirit, you would increase our compassion and our love. And help us to grieve our own sin and motivate us, God, with a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.